0: Wayne LaPierre wins re-election at the NRA, but not without dissension. Plus, an interview with The Atlantic's Adam Serwer. That and more on this episode of The Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Weekly Reload Podcast. I am your host, Steaming Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com. If you want to get this podcast a day early, make sure you head over to TheReload.com and buy a membership where you will get not only access to this particular podcast a day early, but you will get exclusive access to our members-only posts, uh, which often includes most of our analysis on uh, the news of the week in the gun world. Uh, So if you want to know more about what I'm thinking, what I'm seeing in the gun world, uh, what our contributing writer Jake Fogelman is thinking and seeing, make sure you sign up today if you want to help. Support the reload. That is the ideal way to do it because we are 100% reader funded at this point, and we need your support to survive uh, and to go on trips to cover stories like the NRA's uh, members' meeting and the board meeting, which I went to in Charlotte, North Carolina this week, where Wayne LaPierre was. Re-elected as the CEO and executive vice president of the organization for the, uh, it's, boy, it's been several decades now that he's been in control of the organization. And this time it, it happened, even though there have, was actually some dissension, uh, interestingly. You had a board member who is a dissenter who has been involved in uh, trying to, I guess, change the direction of the organization uh, after they've come under heavy scrutiny from New York's uh, attorney general over allegations of corruption against Wayne LaPierre and others uh, in at the top of the agency or at the top of the uh, organization there, uh, accused of diverting um, tens of millions of dollars, really, of, of uh, the NRA's funds towards their own personal expenses for luxury items like private flights and uh, fancy suits and luxury trips uh, to different parts of the world. But uh, that board member, Phil Journey, he actually nominated somebody to run against Wayne LaPierre uh, at this year's board meeting, or this uh, board meeting in North Carolina. Um, he nominated a former board member who, who actually his term just ended, and he was also another one of the board members, the small number of board members who have uh, attempted to uh, try and uh, fight in court against the leadership of the NRA against Wayne LaPierre and, and uh, the other executives. Uh, Rocky Marshall is his name. He received two votes at the board meeting. Wayne received 44. And then there were three members who did not vote at all. Now, if you know anything about the NRA board, uh, you'll notice that, that is, the math does not add up there. There are 76 board members uh, on the NRA board. Uh, it's a very big board. That's not It's not common to have that many board members. Now, the NRA says that this is Uh, in part due to the fact that they have a lot of committees that the NRA does work on. Um, And so that's why they have so many board members. One of the reasons, I guess. And, uh, but anyway, that means about 27, I believe is the correct number that didn't vote in the election at all because they didn't show up to the meeting, uh, which is another common issue at the NRA. Um, For instance, the board meeting that I attended in Dallas, um, after Wayne LaPierre took the group into bankruptcy, uh, which ultimately failed for being filed in, uh not in good faith, uh, and so the group wasn't bankrupt. Um, somewhat complicated as a part of their legal strategy to avoid that uh, that New York lawsuit or to defeat it. Um, it didn't work out, but uh, Wayne took the group into bankruptcy on his own. The board met in an emergency board meeting to vote on whether or not to approve of that move, and, Many board members did not show up to that meeting either. I think it was about 40% of them didn't show up at the uh, emergency bankruptcy board So This is a common a common issue at the NRA to not have uh, very many of the board members actually show up even for important votes like the one we saw in Charlotte. But uh, at the end of the day, Wayne LaPierre was reelected again, but... For the first time in a long time, there was some dissension, and there was a recorded vote uh, on whether or not he should be EVP. He won handily, but um, it's still interesting to see the internal dynamics at play at the country and really the world's largest gun rights organization as it goes through a very serious legal challenge that could threaten its very existence here in the future. Uh, And... Another thing that's become common, in addition to board members not attending the NRA meeting, is that I was the only member of the press who was at the board meeting. I wasn't allowed inside because it was closed to press. Um, but uh, and I don't carry an active membership right now, um, mainly out of concerns for you know the appearance of conflict of interest. I don't think it's a big issue, but it, I prefer not to have a membership in the organization while I'm writing about them if. Uh, if it becomes required that I do so to you know be able to uh, better report on the organization, I will do that. Um, we'll see how things work out in the future but this time at this particular meeting, I was not allowed to sit in on the board meeting. However, of course the the NRA members and a number of the board members who attended uh, informed me of what was happening inside anyway, so it wasn't much of a disadvantage in terms of being able to tell you all what happened there. Um, But yes, there was a a vote over who should lead the NRA, and Wayne won, but it's not a common thing to see happen at the NRA, so that is interesting. And um, if you want to know about that, you should subscribe to the Reload, because, again, it's the only place you're going to get this kind of reporting, apparently. (laughs) No one else sent a single reporter there. So um, make sure you head over to the site and buy a membership uh, if you care to know what's happening inside the NRA. Uh, It's kind of an important organization, as as I think everyone who listens to this podcast can understand uh, when it comes to gun politics in America and the gun laws and so on and so forth. But in addition to the NRA news, we have a piece from uh, Jake Fogelman, our contributing writer. Uh, who's not able to join us because of technical difficulties this week. Uh, So we'll have to get that sorted out for next week. So hopefully all of the Fogelman fans, the Fogel fans, I think uh, is a good term for for those of you who are are, uh, becoming fans of of Jake. Uh, Perhaps if you want to call yourselves that and group together, uh, form an alliance of sorts, uh, I would not be opposed. Uh, I think that would be a great name. Anyway, he wrote uh, about uh, the gun sales numbers. So 2021 now through the end of September uh, has recorded 13.7 million background checks that were related to gun sales, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, analysis of the raw FBI numbers, the National Instant Criminal Background Check System numbers. And that is, in fact, more than all of 2019, which is remarkable given that the highest gun sales months of the year are still in front of us here in 2021. The, the fall and winter months are where you tend to see more gun sales, not fewer. The summer is where you tend to see fewer gun sales. It's a, There's a seasonal pattern to gun sales in America. And, uh, you know, due to things like the hunting season starting up in most parts of the country, uh, and then obviously the holiday season where people tend to Uh, give guns to each other in America. Uh, That is a a common thing to happen. The biggest gun sales day of the year is Black Friday. So, um, yeah, we still have all that in front of us in, in 2021 here. So likely the numbers will be well beyond what we saw in 2019 and will likely rival what we saw last year in 2020. Though, again, September was the second highest sales month Ever for guns or September ever, not month ever, but the highest, the second highest September in history um, for gun sales and second to 2020, which is the trend as we've written, as I've written about a number of times we've talked about on the podcast before. That's where 2021 seems to have ended up. The new normal now is second best ever. We are past the surge uh, and on to the new plateau, which is much higher as you can tell from this story, than where we were beforehand. So, we'll have to continue to watch that and see what develops uh, and see how these next few months here go and gun sales traditionally pick back up and uh, how we turn out for the year compared to 2020. But uh, I think there's several more stories over at the Reload if you wanna check those out or if you sign up for our free newsletter, you will get all of them in your inbox for free. Every week, every Friday morning, Uh, and then obviously the members get an extra newsletter on Sunday mornings that goes over more analysis of the weekend and and gives sometimes a hint at what's ahead and what I've been doing, what I'm up to, um, you know, cool things like that. So make sure you go over, join today. We are going to head over to an interview now with Adam Serwer of The Atlantic. I just had my first piece published in The Atlantic recently, and, uh, you know, I've known Adam for a while. He's a reasonable guy. He's interesting on top of that. Um, So I think our conversation is interesting. And he was just uh, attacked by a Supreme Court justice. So, uh, you know, his work is at the very least influential. So we're going to head over there now and I'll let myself take it away there. All right. I'm here with The Atlantic's Adam Serwer to Give us uh, a fresh perspective for the podcast. Uh, somebody who I think is going to bring a different point of view than some of the other guests we've had on previously. And that's one of the main things I want to try to do with this show is get a variety of, of uh, opinions and perspectives, uh, especially informed ones. And I think Adam is uh, one of my favorite writers out there um, who I don't necessarily always agree with, but I think he's always got to. A, a thought provoking take that isn't just, you know, screaming into, uh, adding to the noise uh, of, of most media commentary. So, uh, Adam, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself for uh, listeners who might not have heard of you before?
1: Sure. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for that uh, very kind introduction. Um, my name is Adam. I'm a writer for The Atlantic. I, I typically write a lot about um, uh race and citizenship. And that, you know, is a pretty broad beat. Um, one that I think, uh, I didn't sort of settled on over the past five years or so, but that I wasn't necessarily always, uh, focused on. I actually used to cover the Supreme court, which is something we're going to get to in here. Um, and I'm a subscriber to Steven's, uh, newsletter, uh, which is very well written. And I always, uh, I don't know, um, I don't know a lot about guns, so I find uh, Stephen's newsletter very informative. Um, and it was the reason that I knew that, uh, you know, Biden's ATF nominee was going to be in big trouble. And, of course, he uh, ended up withdrawing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, congrats to Stephen on breaking some of those stories as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I uh, um, my area of interest is typically uh, race in American history. Um, which is something that has become hot right now, but is not, was not always a, an area of tremendous uh, political interest. But obviously, it's a huge fault line um, in, in American politics at the moment, as it has been, you know, in the past. Sure. Um, uh, for different reasons and in different ways. Yeah, um, and actually, I, uh,
0: going off of that, because uh, obviously race and guns has a long uh, history of uh, intersection in American uh politics and, and american uh, policy so uh uh it's, and like you said you you've spent a lot of time uh, writing about the supreme court as well in fact i think one of the supreme court justices called you out specifically today to complain about uh, a piece that you'd written uh, alito right uh, so you, you certainly yeah. are read he was
1: he's was, he was not um he did not appreciate my criticism of what i felt was the court's of strategic inaction in the Texas ab- abortion case. I, I live here in Texas, and uh, I assume your listeners probably know this already, but the Texas law was sort of designed to evade judicial review, um, which has you know made it a target of criticism, not just from people who support abortion rights, but also people who think, uh, people on the right who uh, oppose abortion, but think that uh, you know, laws should not be written so as to evade court scrutiny. And uh, actually um, but and a, a if, bit know,
0: about that law, uh, for the reload mm-hmm. um, on how it's likely to be adopted by uh, gun control activists at some point, I, I would expect in the future as well. You
1: know, it's interesting. I don't think it's going to work out that, that I don't think that's that scheme is going to work out as well for them, because part of the the the, the um, part of the way the Texas the reason the Texas law was functional in the way that it is, is that, it you know, because of the court court's composition, people are less likely, uh, you know, abortion Providers or people support, groups that support abortion rights were less likely to want to enter a court challenge because they fear that the court will then use that to over uh, overrule Roe v. Wade. Sure. Whereas I think if you're a gun owner in New York City um, and, and New York adopts a, a scheme similar to the Texas law, the, the line's going to be around the block uh, for gun owners to say, "Okay, I want to violate this law, so so you know, uh, so then I can sue and get to the Supreme Court." It's just like the scheme is not as functional when you have a court that's pretty friendly to the to the right in question. Um, yeah. So that's why you know uh, uh, that weekend I think a, a Washington Post uh, in the Washington Post uh, an abortion doctor here in San Antonio where I live talked about uh, you know he said I performed an abortion I violated, violated the law and you can sue me um, and uh, some of the abortion uh, anti-abortion groups that uh, said supported the law were saying. You know, we're arguing that, you know, the, the courts shouldn't take up these cases because they actually didn't want the lawsuits. They don't want the law. They don't want anybody to end up actually challenging the law because they just want it to sort of remain in this liminal space forever. Mm-hmm. But you really can't do that with gun rights. It's not going to work. They could try it, but I don't think it's going to work.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a fair point, I think. But uh, certainly you could probably make a similar argument about some of the laws the gun laws that exist uh, these outlier laws like Hawaii for instance uh, with has almost a total ban on all forms of of gun carry at this point point. Uh, and so they're sort of ripe for challenge but they oftentimes uh, localities will pass laws anyway um, mm-hmm. because it you know just like in Texas it sort of lines up with their political interests to try and push the boundaries mm-hmm. on these things um, so in places like DC or California or Hawaii, New York, Maryland, New Jersey, where, where the politics are are uh, aligned to push the boundaries on gun laws, uh, you, you still see laws get passed there oftentimes uh, <laughs> until they're forced to uh, be repealed by the courts. So uh, it'll be interesting hmm. to see, though. I mean, I think that's a fair point. Like, yes, it's much more likely that with a court that is more friendly towards uh the Second Amendment or, or Second Amendment protections or extending spe- Second Amendment protections than they are towards uh, abortion protections, um, that you, you may have more hesitance to go that route. Um, although uh, that's actually one of our first topics that I wanted to talk about is mm. the Supreme Court now. Uh, well, one, I guess, we, you know, the court hasn't really been that aggressive on guns uh, in the past mm. decade. Um, now people expect that they'll, become more active on the issue, I guess, uh, with the new appointments from the Trump administration um, sort of settling in. And now we've seen them take uh, one case. Uh, It's the first major gun carry case that appears as though it will go to the merits, Um, Mm -hmm. because obviously they had one last year that ended up uh, uh, being declared moot. Uh, based off of mm-hmm. uh, some actions that the New York uh, government took to uh, make it moot uh, after it mm-hmm. had already been accepted by the court. But uh, now they're they're considering gun carries, the first major case they're likely to, to have a big decision on since, uh, well, since McDonald uh, back in, mm-hmm. was it, 2010? Um, so it's been over a decade now. Uh, there was a lot of expectation that, Heller and McDonald would lead to a lot more cases, but they haven't to this point. And we don't know exactly what the court's going to come out, uh, how this is going to actually turn out. Uh, At the end of the day, we still have to wait and see. I think most people expect that New York's may issue concealed carry law, which allows essentially government officials in New York to have great discretion over who gets to have a concealed carry permit um, based essentially off of whether or not that official, I think in the case of New York, it's county judges, um, whether they believe the person has a good reason to carry their firearm for self-defense where, you know, in public, even if that person has passed, you know, the the training requirements and the background check, they still could be denied mm-hmm. under this this sort of system that New York has and that seven other states have as well um, and which has been upheld and struck down at the circuit level creating a split that has now resulted in this case being taken by the court but uh, what I wanted to talk with you about just a little bit here is uh, mm-hmm. s- some of the dueling briefs that have been filed in this case we just got the deadline um, for all the amicus briefs passed uh, earlier this month or you know in, in September and uh, we had Some significant groups come down on either side of this. You had, uh, for instance, the ACLU and the NAACP um, in referencing specifically the racial aspect of may issue gun permits Mm -hmm. uh, laws. They acknowledged the sort of racist history of this type Mm -hmm. of policy um, and said that it it was not uh, the appropriate remedy to strike down this New York's law completely because Mm -hmm. New York's law is not um, specifically designed with racist intent Uh, Mm -hmm. is I think essentially the argument they're making there and that for, you know, that equal protection suits are better remedy for any concerns about the, you know, racial outcomes of these kind of laws that still exist today. Um, rather than Second Amendment suits. And then you had groups like um, the National African-American Gun Association and uh, the Public Defenders uh, of New York come down on the other side where Mm -hmm. they discussed the racist history of these kinds of policies and also the disparity in how they are currently enforced in New Mm -hmm. York as well um, with uh, minorities, Facing more prosecutions um, compared to their, you know, uh, actual uh, distribution in society, uh, as we've often talked talk about, right, with, with lots of other laws about how uh, the um, how their actual enforcement is uh, impacts different communities differently, um, usually with African Americans, especially young African American men being prosecuted at higher rates for crimes uh, committed under these these laws. And so there's this dichotomy, right? There's this there's mm-hmm. this distinction between two sides here that that uh, see different, that uh, have totally different views of whether this law is racially discriminatory or should, whether it's constitutional, it should be struck down. Uh, I just wanted you to speak a little bit to that uh, divide and, and give us some of
1: your insight. Well, so it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult issue, right? Because, you know, there's no question that any, I mean, it, it, if you, um, there's an expectation that any time, you know, because of the way the American criminal justice system works, there's an expectation on the left that any kind of law that you pass is going to be um, enforced, m- more is more likely to be enforced against Black people than white people because Black communities are more heavily policed. So on the one hand, the Black voters uh, strongly support gun control because they, uh, Black communities tend to, Black neighborhoods tend to bear the brunt of gun violence. So they want to see more controls on firearms because they want to reduce gun violence at the same time. There's this issue of, you know, um, Black people who are simply trying to protect themselves who end up getting prosecuted um, under gun laws, strict gun laws. and so you have this uh, you have this sort of competing interests, and I can kind of understand it from both sides. I think that the larger issue is that there are so many guns that it's very hard for gun restrictions to be effective um, in, in, in any real sense. Like, I'm not sure, you know, if this law was struck down, I'm not sure how much in New York would change um, just to like, you know, just moving from D.C. to Texas, which is a place that has a very... Um, Obviously, uh, you know, a a very long tradition of gun ownership. Um, You know, the Texas legislature passes these like uh, pro-gun laws every year. And nothing, there's not a lot that really changes. And part of the reason for that is, you know, you can pass as many open carry laws as you want. But like every business in Texas is going to be like, you can't bring firearms in here. So it's really not convenient to take your gun like literally everywhere you go if you live in a city um you know because you know property rights you you you're not allowed in a, in a particular business establishment um and and i'm not sure how many people in new york um you know how even if they're allowed to if 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 the supreme court loosens or strikes down the law i mean it seems likely to me that the new york legislature would pass a different kind of law that would be designed to um you know, evade whatever uh, legal standard that the Supreme Court sets up because their constituents, it's a blue state, their constituents are concerned about gun violence and they want some kind of restrictions to lower gun violence. So it seems to me that, it, I mean, even though this is a big case, uh, I, and, and they, you can correct me on this game because you, you, you know this stuff better than I do, but it seems to me that not a tremendous amount changes if this regulatory scheme is struck down. Right.
0: Well, yeah, actually, we can look at uh, your hometown, uh, D.C., for an example of what might happen if the court strikes down New York's law, uh, because D.C. is where uh, the circuit split happened, because the D.C. circuit struck down D.C.'s um, May issue law um, a few years back. Well, initially, D.C. had a total ban on all gun carry, uh, as -hmm. it's want to do. It likes to be. out on a limb as strict as it possibly can be on gun uh, issues, gun laws. So uh, it had a total ban that got struck down actually for a few days in DC, they had a uh, permitless carry uh, effectively because their law against concealed, concealed carry mm-hmm. or any kind of carry had been struck down and wasn't being enforced. So uh, you, uh, you were able to carry very briefly uh, during that time period yeah. in DC without a permit, which I actually did. Um, at the yeah, time. I remember you tweeting that you were doing that. <laughs> yes. So, uh, um, and uh, you know, no, no one was harmed in the making of that uh, that mm-hmm. video where I briefly carried uh, without a permit in DC. But then DC passed um, a may issue law, very similar to what uh, not so much New York. New York has kind of a weird uh, variant on this basic idea uh, of may issue because usually in New York they'll issue you a. Uh, gun carry permit, but it's most of them effectively have restrictions that make it impossible to carry in the vast majority of public places. Um, and so that's more how their law works compared to, you know, California or Maryland, where they just won't give you a permit at all. And, and so uh, DC passed a law like that. And then that got challenged and struck down in Wren uh, as well. And so DC eventually got, I guess, the message here, <laughs> which is that the courts were not going to allow them to, uh, at least the DC circuit wasn't going to allow them to uh, mm-hmm. have these that style of
1: law. I mean, DC is a, a good example of what we're talking about, really. I mean, DC is, is a city whose constituents uh, have uh, suffered a lot from gun violence over mm-hmm. the years when I was growing up there in the 90s, obviously, sure. you know, 80s and 90s, it was a huge issue. And so gun restrictions are very popular. Um, and the the you know the city council is responsive to that. Um, and there have been you know obviously there's been a rise in homicides that has happened over the past year, which I think you know if i were if I were to hazard a guess, my my big theory is that uh, people are at home and drinking and then acting recklessly. Um, if if I had to hazard a guess for why that's yeah. happening because it seems to be uniform throughout the country right. uh, mm-hmm. but in DC you know there are, I, I, you know people have, People who have not previously had experiences with seeing a shooting in public have seen them, um, and so I think that puts a lot. You know, um, there's a lot of political pressure for uh, city officials to do something when things like that start happening.
0: Sure, but um, uh, but so DC so, eventually passed the shall issue law, which they have now. Yeah, now it's a fairly restrictive version of shall issue. So shall issue is where effectively the government uh, officials judge, personal judgment is taken out of the process. And so long as you go through uh, the steps required to obtain a, a permit, you will be granted one. So if you pass the background check, you take the, the training that's required. They have to give you a permit. Uh, they shall issue mm-hmm. you a permit instead of they may issue you. How
1: many people actually do that? Um do you yeah,
0: know? In D.C., there's, uh, I believe it's uh, a couple thousand at this point. They've issued a bunch more in recent years. Um, probably in part due to uh, some of the rise rising violence we've seen over the last year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's just a report out recently about how there was a, a significant increase in the number of permits issued in the city. I'm not aware of any, I'm not, actually not aware of a single example of a, somebody with a permit committing using any a sort of crime. Uh, now, mm-hmm. uh, not that that is, obviously there are people who have concealed carry permits in America who commit crimes, mm-hmm. although we, From data from, uh, I believe, Florida and Texas, which released uh, all of the crimes committed by anyone who has a concealed carry permit, they tend to be uh, people who commit crimes at a lower rate than uh, police officers do, um, and a much lower rate than the general public. Uh, As you might imagine, for somebody who's going to go through the process to get a permit to carry a gun, they will tend to be more law
1: abiding by nature i would i would guess that's also I, it would seem not to be very wise to commit if you're going to commit a felony to commit it with your government license issued firearm right. seems like a very uh, unwise approach
0: sure um but but so uh, uh you know we have seen sort of the uh, a real world example of what you what you were wondering about mm-hmm. like what would happen in new york if this goes through um and it, you know probably would see D.C. style shall issue laws get passed in, mm. uh, you know, the remaining places that still have may issue, which, to be fair, it's only eight states, but those eight states are some of the largest states. So they they make up about 25 percent of the population, you know, California, New York, New Jersey. Um, and so uh, it, it still would be a fairly significant thing to have this happen. I mean, you probably see quite a lot more Americans uh, by you know, raw number, uh, obtain concealed carry permits uh, than, mm-hmm. than right now. But uh, but I am doubtful that, one. you know, how much of an effect it would have on the crime rate either way, I think is a very open question. I mean, again, you look at D.C., uh, I'm not aware of any evidence that people who obtain concealed carry permits in D.C. are any sort of driver of violence in D.C. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, obviously, Uh, you have seen an increase in at least the murder rate uh, in DC as well, just like the rest of the country over the last uh, year and a half, which again, again is probably due to factors beyond whether or not uh, concealed carry permits are easily obtainable. Of course, I think that the general argument for, uh, you know, concealed carry advocates, uh, you will get people who argue that just more guns is less crime, just like you get people who argue less guns is equals less crime as well. Both positions, in my view, are pretty uh, unsupported by, by evidence. I but think
1: it's hard. I think it's like hard. You know, I think when you have I think it's probably the case that if you have obviously if you have zero guns in a country, then you're not going to have a lot of gun crime. Sure. The question is, is there a scheme of. Regulation that can be effective in a country that has a long tradition of gun ownership. Yeah, and I think they're probably they're probably and one that would pass constitutional muster, muster particularly with this Supreme Court. And 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 I'm I'm I don't know what the answer to that question. is.
0: Yeah, and I, like and I mean even I even high, your commonly cited examples of uh, you know trips on either side, where it's like less less guns equals less crime. You often see people bring up uh, Australia where they institute a gun Mm -hmm. confiscation program uh, on a much smaller scale than what you would need in the United States where, I mean, people don't really understand the the true scale of gun ownership in America, uh, even gun owners themselves, frankly. Like you'll hear numbers thrown around. Like, you know, the, the small arms survey estimates there's over 400 million firearms owned by civilians in the United States, right? And that's That's a huge number, right? And, and, you know, we know that's a big number, but I think people don't get the scale of that number because the same survey estimates there are about a million small arms owned by all of the law enforcement agencies in the entire country. Mm -hmm. So civilians own 400 times more firearms than Mm -hmm. the entire law enforcement uh, apparatus of the United States. and. I believe the number is 4 million for the entire United States military, as far as 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 small arms go, right? Rifles Mm. and handguns and shotguns, things like that. And so, again, 100 times more small arms are owned by American civilians than uh, the American, I I believe that's, yeah, than the American military combined. And then I believe it's 10 million small arms for the entire world's military. Uh, So, you know just what to percentage give, like, of the
1: population is gun owners, though? Uh,
0: the percent you know, it, it depends on what how, you, how you're uh estimating it. Uh, if you ask people directly whether they own a gun personally, you'll get somewhere between you know 30 and 35 percent of Americans, mm-hmm. uh, which is still about 100
1: million. That's a large number, um, but it, it does seem like that people who own a gun probably own more than one. Sure. Yeah, that's or common. that there's like a, a there's a there's a large percentage of gun owners who are, who do not simply own one firearm. Yeah. Um certainly. Some, and that that 35%. Obviously, it's not a, it's not a small number of people, but Right. Although if you um,
0: ask people if they have a gun in their home, which is a slightly different mm-hmm. question than whether they personally own a gun, they might get slightly different answers. And you also have the issue Yeah. Of people not wanting to tell a stranger over the phone whether they own guns or not, um, mm. so it per, perhaps decreases the, the the numbers being reported because most of the online most of the surveys that do this, like Gallup and Pew, you know, it's a phone survey and so. Has that
1: thirty five percent number changed? It has a lot changed significantly over
0: the last you know decade or so. Um, but uh, if you ask people if they have a gun in their home, you get uh, more into 40 to 45 uh, yeah. percent. So it's an even larger percentage. Uh, obviously, it's still not a majority of of American adults. I, I believe the number is something like 120 million uh, people report having uh, adults report having a gun in their home. So it's a lot of people, obviously, and the the, fr- the uh, frequency of gun ownership fluctuates. I'm sure quite a, a lot between uh, different states with different laws like California mm. or Nevada or California or Arizona, even though they're, you know, neighboring states, I'm sure mm. that the, it, it's hard to know for sure. Obviously we don't have a national gun registry uh, for good reason. Obviously a lot of uh, gun rights advocates would, would say, but um, so we, mm. you can't really know a lot of these things a hundred percent, but you know, we can get some idea of it. But the point is, uh, a lot of people own guns, uh, a lot more than Australia, where I think they confiscated something like 5 million guns, which would be nothing here in the United States. I mean, even if you confiscated, let's just say AR-15s, right? Um, modern sporting rifles, as the industry calls them. That subject, that subset of guns, which in America is the most controversial, right? that's what we're always fighting about, with mm. assault weapons, so-called assault weapons bans. There's estimated to be uh, somewhere around 16 million of those in American, uh, owned by American civilians today. Uh, Now, again, that it's a big number, but people won't really get the context of that. Again, 16 times more guns than the entire arsenal of the American law enforcement community combined. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so even if you were to, uh, you know, confiscate 90 percent of those You'd still have when you say 1. confiscate, 1. do you
1: mean like I mean, legally on. compel people to turn them in? Sure. Or like, what like Beto has, has said, right? offer money like, it you know, we don't want you to on this and we'll pay you to give it back.
0: Yeah. I mean, it does, that's more a question about you like how could you effectively confiscate guns? I'm just saying if you were able to whatever means you used, let's say you you passed a law that that made it mandatory and you paid 10 t- people, $10,000 a piece for their ARs. And so lots of people complied and everyone who didn't got, you know, theirs taken whatever, whatever the means would be, this is a fantasy see, scenario, but the even numbers, in that case, the numbers are, you're still going to have more AR 15s in civilian hands. than there are all guns in uh, police hands in the entire country. See, like, I, don't, you actually, the, the I don't
1: actually know if, um, if the if the numbers are really the obstacle here i mm-hmm. i actually think sure. it, it is more the political tradition around guns is a larger yeah. obstacle to anything like that i don't think right. it's the i mean like the actual number like i don't know i can't imagine a situation in which you would go uh, uh, the american government would support someone going door to door to take away anything at no. all ever like i can't i can't think of anything like i can't think of another object uh, in history where, where something like that would happen. But I also think, you know, there's obviously a, a long political tradition around firearms in the United States that I think makes that kind of scheme politically infeasible. Yeah, uh, even I mean, I given, agree. My point uh, here is you know,
0: just, uh, I think you're absolutely right as far as like the the, the political practicality of a, uh, of a mass gun confiscation in the United States ever happening is, is near zero. I mean, it would, mm-hmm. I don't even want to, like get into the consequences of trying to implement something like that in real life. But but my point is just that uh, the scale of gun ownership in America is not well understood. And so even if you, uh, uh, even when you look at the Australian uh, gun confiscation, which was uh, associated with or happened alongside a decrease in, in uh, violent crime in Australia, right? This is a common mm-hmm. argument that you hear uh, for, why less guns equals less crime. Uh, You hear this quite a lot. Uh, Now, of course, this happened in the 1990s, right? And so uh, what happened in the United States, which had, which to my point has far more guns uh, Mm -hmm. that you would need to confiscate to get to an effect like what the Australians had uh, in terms of how many, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what percentage of the population. It seems to me it would
1: be far easier. I mean, it, politically speaking, um, it would be feasible in you know some hypothetical political circumstance to mm-hmm. ban the manufacture of those guns, but sure. not to eliminate. Oh, well, we did that once right? there. Yeah, but, we did that once already under Clinton. Yes, um, but but not to like remove them from cir- commercial circulation. I think that would be difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly, but. Uh, but my, my only point here, I sorry, I keep getting this sidetracked, but my, my only point here is that, yes, Australia experienced a decrease in violent crime between the 90s and now, uh, and they happened to have confiscated, uh, implemented a confiscation program hmm. uh, in that country uh, in that time period. But if you look at the United States, and so people point to that as like, oh, this is evidence that fewer crimes means uh, you know, fewer guns means fewer crimes. Uh, but if you look at what happened in the United States in the same time period, uh, the, gun, the number of guns here increased significantly um, in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, the number of background checks sale, uh, on gun sales done in the time period between the 1990s and today. The numbers are in the, you know, tens of millions, if not 100 million plus. But uh, and in that same time period, we saw the same uh, decrease in violent crime. Uh, now, this is over the last year and a half, we've seen an increase in specific kinds of violent crime, specifically murder. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the the trend matches, even though we, the United States, basically did the exact opposite policy of what Australia did, uh, which mm-hmm. is to, to sell a lot more guns. And then at the same time, obviously, you can look at uh, the crime rates of, of uh, other countries which have fewer guns um, and, and see that they're... Violent crime rates are lower, especially their gun crime rates. Um, so the idea mm-hmm. that more more guns automatically equals less crime is also, I think, a stretch. Um, but you get these mm-hmm. these sort of you know uh, uh, arguments made all the time, uh, and I, I think it's it's a bit uh, <laughs> with lacking in nuance uh, to say the mm-hmm. least. But uh, I guess one area this extends to that I wanted to talk to you uh, briefly about. Uh, it, it is the a governor's race in Texas that's coming? Because mm-hmm. now yeah. we have Beto O'Rourke uh, getting in apparently again to uh, this. Well, I guess he he's running for governor for the first time. He ran for Senate mm-hmm. and President, but um, and failed at, at both of those things. But he's uh, been a buzzworthy candidate for quite a while now in, in uh, the Texas Great Blue Hope, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, now he's at it again, and obviously. I think our listeners will remember him mainly for his pledge to take uh, Americans, AR-15s and AK-47s away from them by force if necessary. Um, and I wonder what you think about how that's going to play in Texas specifically.
1: Well, I think uh, you know Abbott is underwater, which is unusual. Um, and, and I think the reason for that is that he has, uh, you know, he's facing a primary challenge from his right. Um, and he, uh, you know, he has sort of a reputation as kind of an elder statesman as and he's very conservative, but he, you know, he's not a crazy person. Um, and, and Texas is a, you know, right of center fate. And so, uh, you know, people want a relatively conservative governor. Um, and he was, but he was seen as like a responsible person, not, you know, looting. Um, and his handling the pandemic, he has, um, you know he's played a lot of games. You know, he did this thing where he, uh, he he banned masks, but then you know sort of in the, when things got really bad in 2020, um, and cities started issuing you know mask requirements. He was like, "See, I told you you could do that." He, he just played a lot of games with efforts to um, mitigate the pandemic and with you know interfering with cities' jurisdictions, yeah, city jurisdictions' like ability to pass restrictions to mitigate the pandemic. Um, and obviously, you know, the there's there's sort of a myth of Texas is like Austin is the only blue area in Texas, but that's not really true. I mean, Texas is experiencing the same political, rural, urban political polarization as every, everywhere else in the country. So a lot of the cities are, you know, pretty liberal. Um, Does that leave think, an
0: open path for Beto or do you think his comments? I con- mean, I think comments it, it are, obviously, you know, obviously it has,
1: you know, it is it, 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 it made, made the state bluer. You know, Romney beat Obama here by double digits and, you know. Trump beat Biden by single digits. So obviously the state is getting more modern and, you know, Beto came close against Cruz in 2018, but anytime you have, um, anytime it's a midterm election, the president's party usually suffers. So even though Abbott is unpopular because of the way he's handled the pandemic, um, that doesn't mean necessarily that they want um, someone significantly to his left. You know, Beto is not the usual model of the red state, um, Democratic governor. Um, the reason why Democrats like him, uh, is that he provokes a lot of enthusiasm in the state. Um, you know, he spent a lot of time doing something that Texas Democrats have not been good at over the past few years, which is he's, he's, he's run around the state trying to register voters and build a party infrastructure. Um, I think that, you know, so far the polling for him is not tremendously positive. Um, And he would be going into a headwind because of, you know, because it's a midterm in a year when the Democrat controls the White House. Um, You know, as far as the gun issue, I mean, when I talked to Texas Democratic consultants, they've been pretty clear to me that he's going to have to walk back from the things he said when he was running for president. Do you think
0: that's even possible Um, at this point, given how forceful he was
1: about it and how much attention he got? You know, that's not up to me. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a question of whether, you know, Texas voters believe his walk back, whether they prioritize other issues um, besides that. Um, And so, you know, maybe they don't believe him, but they prefer him to have it anyway. So there's a lot of questions that go into that. I think that, you know, obviously, Texas is a state with a lot of gun owners and people who support gun rights. Um, So it's going to be an issue for him. He's going to have to deal with it at some point. I mean, if you even in South of I-10, you know, which is like a pretty democratic area, you have a lot of rural Latino voters who own guns, um, who work in branching, you know, things like that. Um, so I think it's going to be an issue for him. Um, I don't like to pre- I don't predict the outcomes of, of, of uh, political races because I'm not very good at that. Um, uh, what I can say is that I think, obviously, Beto... Beto's a weird candidate for government of Texas because he's not, you know, necessarily a moderate. I mean, he's to the the right of Democrats on certain issues, particularly with regards to the border. But he's obviously, you know, he's more of a base enthusiasm candidate than a centrist. Um, And I don't know whether that's a good strategy in a state like Texas, but I also don't know that it won't work. I mean, it really sort of depends on how the Democratic base in Texas is feeling and how... The conservative base is failing if they're if they've sat if, if republican voters have soured on abbott because they feel like he's a sellout or they you know or something like that um you know it, it might be a competitive race uh but that's part of the reason why abbott has been um you know trying to shore up his right flank over the past couple of years sure. um so it's yeah i just his, uh primary challenge i
0: just kept kind of tired of seeing the same people the same like 10 people run for office all the time and having to talk about them again and again uh like beto has failed twice now to be this uh you know new blue texas uh guy mm-hmm. uh, and now we're gonna do this again I, I don't know maybe somebody else in the primary will well it'd
1: be in surpass to be him. completely honest there isn't a, a deep bench of texas democrats because they haven't you know held office held statewide office in in, in like 30 years so sure um, there's not a, a tremendous. I mean, I, it is, I suppose if you were, if you want to do something like in Louisiana or Kentucky, you you would find, um, you know, a, a relatively conservative, a Democrat who has a good, you know, who has a state-wide reputation for being a moderate, and try to run them. Um, I'm not sure why they haven't tried to do that. Um, Wasn't well, a lot of betas maybe comes
0: from outside of Texas, right? He can raise money right. from from he can raise money liberals across the country, um,
1: I guess. You know, it, it's it, it, you know, there's an issue of you know. It, I mean, part of the issue with the urban-rural polarization is if you nominate a moderate, are you going to depress turnout in areas where you need to juice it? Sure. Um, so it's the, you know, and this is one of the reasons why when people keep talking about, um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm I I think like there's it, it an obvious way in which Texas is trending blue, but I, I'm not necessarily I don't necessarily. N- know that uh, a Democrat is going to win a statewide election here um, anytime soon, necessarily. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, plus, I mean, sort of the old the old uh, canard about demographic change always must mean that, you know, Democrats will get every minority vote uh, in Texas moving forward. I mean, yeah, I think, clearly I think that's, that's actually not, not the case. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, yeah. I think that's it's obviously not the case. I mean, one, one Democrat said to me, you know, when he was talking, I mean, you look at Zapata County, that county that flipped along the Rio Grande Valley. I mean, look, you know, there's like multiple reasons why that happened. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously, one of, one of the reasons was Joe Biden saying in a debate, you know, we're, we got to phase out fossil fuels. Yeah. Well, if you're in a county where most of the jobs come from energy companies, right. um, you know, it doesn't really matter what race you are. You're going to go, well, I don't want to lose my job, especially if your bosses are telling you, You know, if Joe Biden gets elected, we're going to close this place down. Right. Um, You know, that's going to exercise a big influence on your vote. So I I think, you know, it it is certainly a case. It it is a a mistake to assume that demographic change demographic change necessarily um, means, you know, Democrats are going to benefit. Yes. Uh, I see you, this, you hear this. I, a
0: I lot think this on like it's these days. You hear this a lot on both sides, right? You,
1: you can you can hear you hear on Fox News there's all this talk about like replacement and stuff like yes. that, but it's it's not actually true. You cannot like just because someone is Latino or uh, you know um, does not mean that their political philosophy is going to be liberal, right? And um, particularly if you come from a country that is right. And particularly if you, if you, if your family like has come to the United States from someplace a country that has a liberal left wing government, mm-hmm. um, you're not necessarily going to be all that receptive to people you see as reflecting that kind of political philosophy. Right. So, I, you know, I, I think it's a mistake. I mean, I, I think whenever people on right or left assume mm-hmm. that those demographic changes are going to be positive for democrat for Democrats, that's a mistake. Right. I've all actually right. written at length about this, but certainly,
0: certainly, um, and. Just uh, one final point on that minorities are not a monolith, uh, 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 you know, idea here, uh, specifically back to, to guns. Um, you know, I, I think on the right, it's or in the gun rights community, not necessarily on the right, but in the gun rights community, people who advocate for, for gun rights, um, especially for all, all sorts of uh, people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Uh, you, The narrative is often that gun control has very distinctly racist origins in the United States dating back to things like the Black Codes uh, in the antebellum South during slavery, continuing on through the Jim Crow era uh, in post-Civil War South uh, up till the civil rights movement. And even uh, necessarily, you know, even, even in how it, uh, the, the outcomes are uh, affecting minorities today, uh, in how some of these laws are actually um enforced in practice um yeah. you know disparity in, in how and who gets convicted and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning but uh you know that is kind of the the full view that you get from gun uh rights activists when we talk you hear about uh race and guns in America and I just wonder uh if you Think that is uh, if you have any thoughts on that, and you think it needs more needs to be added um, to be considered more context, because um, obviously, like you spoke about, um, most you know, Black Americans support gun control uh, policies at a higher rate than most White Americans do. And mm-hmm. now why would they do that? Obviously, if uh, uh, you know, if they believe that the policies were were racist. Um, so there, mm-hmm. there's obviously some. Uh, component here that is not often discussed, and I was wondering if you could just
1: uh, give yeah, us a I mean, quick roundup on, there's on no that. There's no question. I mean, like as a historical matter, there's no question that there were a lot of laws passed after the Civil War that had the, you know, after Reconstruction that had the intent of disarming, you know, in particular Black Union veterans who who were seen as, even if if that was not necessarily, who are seen as like competent militarily, um, you know, these are these, these are guys who knew how to fight. Um, And and they very much, you know, while they were, um, you know, Reconstruction ended with a campaign of violence by, uh, you know, Democratic aligned paramilitaries against uh, black voters who mostly uh, voted Republican at the time. Um, And and part of this was was not just disenfranchisement by the ballot, but also disarming them so that they could not physically resist, um, you know, these acts of terrorism. Um, but today, obviously, the, the big issue is gun violence. So, you know, you have these communities that are suffering disproportionately from gun violence, disproportionately from, um, you know, discrimination from law enforcement. Um, and so, you know, they are more likely to support restrictions, despite the fact, I mean, you, you, you're, I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with the anecdotes. I mean, obviously, you know, Martin Luther King's entourage was armed. Uh, you know, and Martin Luther King was denied was a, a
0: gun carry permit. Yeah.
1: In major the state. um mm-hmm. obviously, you know everybody's seen the, the iconic Malcolm X photo of mm-hmm. him defending his home, looking out the window um but it's you know it's not it, it, you know and it, it, you're not going i mean like if if you if you want to tell black voters that they are more likely to be um prosecuted under gun restrictions than white people, they already know that huh? because it's 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 true of most laws in the united states um but you know, the issue with gun violence is, you know, it's, um, although I will say it's such a huge problem that people obviously want relief from it. Like, sure. if, you know, it, it is, you know, I don't, I don't know if, uh, you've ever known anybody who's been, uh, who's been shot, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's awful. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's awful to lose your friends and classmates, your loved ones, um, so people uh, support uh, gun restrictions because they want to see less of that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the issue is really that there's just so many guns that in my mind, it's very hard for gun restrictions to be effective because there's so many guns around that the, the black market and firearms even, it, it, it is, is just, you know, it is so easily accessible by anybody who is determined to obtain a gun sure. unlawfully.
0: Uh, I would say one one thing I would add because I think I agree with you a lot on on everything you just said there. But one thing I would add is that while Black Americans might uh, you know have a, a good understanding that they're more likely to be prosecuted under uh, gun laws uh, today, even uh, uh, because they're more likely to be prosecuted under a lot of different kind of laws, we talk a lot more in the media about uh, other laws that have disproportionate. Uh, effects on on mm-hmm. Black Americans than we do about gun laws, uh, frankly, and in, in the way we discuss them, um, and I, you know, I, to me that's a that's that's a problem, <laughs> but uh, uh, and uh, you know, perhaps you agree with me there, but but um, uh, but yeah, no, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on, and uh, and can you oh, tell thank people. You for a little bit, uh, uh, you have a book that's out now, if they're interested in more of your writing. Oh, yeah, I
1: have a book, um, I have a book that's out now, The Cruelty is the Point, which is, uh, you know, uh, it is about the historical roots of, of the Trump era, um, and the political and ideological currents, um, that, uh, brought us to that point. And, you know, it's funny to think of, the, to talk about the Trump era in past tense, because I'm not sure it is. Sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's out now, um, and you know you you can read my stuff at the Atlantic. I'm a a, a, a left wing writer, so so I want to give your listeners that that expectation if they haven't already figured that one out. <laughs> um, but thank you for having me on the show.
0: Yes, I think you're left wing, but you're fair, so I, and interesting, which is even more important, frankly, <laughs> oftentimes. But um, <laughs> thank you very much. Steve. But yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on, and, and hopefully we can have you on uh, again soon. Maybe maybe once this case comes down, we can discuss the outcome of it.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much, Sam. Take
0: care. All right, and that is all we've got for you this week on the Weekly Reload Podcast. Remember, members get this a day early. Please also, if you want to help the podcast grow, review it, rate it on your favorite podcasting app. Uh, that really does improve the reach of our glorious show into new Uh, Ears. So that's very important, I think, uh, for the long-term success here at the Weekly Reload podcast. And that's all I've got. So I will see you again next week. Buy a membership. Subscribe to the newsletter. Share this with your friends and family and everyone you know if you want to help spread word of what we're trying to accomplish here. Anyway, I will see you again next week. just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones, but none of them were ever my own.